electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bozo with John Fort and Carl Quintanilla. Today, the chip stock rebound, a breakdown of Micron's stellar quarter, as names like NVIDIA lead the tech rally higher and where things could go from here. And then cloudy forecasts. Why Bessemer's Byron Dieter says it could take 20 months for cloud stocks to come near their pandemic peaks, plus his top picks for the space And finally, the mouse is in the house. There is a new bull on the street when it comes to Disney, and we will tell you why later this hour. Carl. We're going to start, though, with uh, chips. As uh, Dee said, take a look at the SMH, up about 15% since the 14th of March. And since January, escaping the smackdown that has hit so many growth names, chips down just 9% year-to-date versus the cloud, for example, down 17% in that time. It's been a sea of green for chip names amid the rebound, names like NVIDIA and AMD up double digits. And then Micron, of course, on the move this morning. That company with a beat in their latest earnings and projecting record revenue for the current quarter. We talked to Sanjay Marotra earlier this morning. He weighed in on the chip shortages in an interview earlier on Squawk on the Street. In certain parts of the markets, uh, in in certain parts of the semiconductor industry, and some of the shortages do still continue, and we see those continuing into 2023. So overall, yes, shortages are easing in most areas, but in some areas, they are still continuing and will continue to challenge the industry into 2023 as well. Marotra added that Micron's expecting cost increases stemming from the Russia-Ukraine conflict on the earnings call, but noting that they have diversified their supply chain enough to avoid pressure from the region in the near term. That was a key point, D. when we talked about, for example, Neon, which Ukraine mm-hmm. supplies about half of the world's supply. Yeah, and some think that there's enough for six months, uh, which hopefully would be enough to last through the latest supply shock. Uh, interesting, though, John, in that Micron has really done a good job diversifying. It used to be equated with PC sales and the PC market, but data centers, a bright spot during the last quarter, surging more than 60 percent. Last quarter, industrial sales also growing 60 percent. Auto revenue set a record, and yet this is still a chip maker that is very cheap relative to some of the other names, especially on a forward PE basis, about half that of Intel, John. Yeah, and I, and I think actually PCs are an important place for investors to look as they think about where they expect Micron to go from here, particularly enterprise PCs. Spend some time on that on the call in Q2. Enterprise PCs started coming back, which sort of makes sense because you're getting more workers starting to come back into offices and the mix toward there is higher. And so, you know, Micron saying that they expect stable PC revenues throughout 2022. That's an important part of, I think, what you got to look at, because in a way, if you think that doesn't happen, it seems like you'd have to have some retreat from offices back to homes uh, for for enterprise PC spending with the higher end mix not to continue, Carl. And, uh, you know, even though autos are important and they've talked about how the car is like a data center when it comes to chips and the market opportunity there, that's still a smaller growth market. Enterprise PC is quite important. 
Yeah, that, that's definitely the locus of the attention today. We're going to stick with chips, obviously. Our next guest is one of the only analysts left with the, on the street with a hold on MU, saying he is staying on the sidelines despite the strong quarter. Joining us this morning, Piper Sandler, senior research analyst, Harsh Kumar. Harsh, um, why the caution? Is it about DRAM inventories or some of the other lingering concerns on the street? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show. No, uh, Micron is a relative uh, neutral for us. We just think there are much better businesses that one can invest in. So while the company is doing absolutely wonderfully, we just want to be positioned into more distinctive plays that have differentiated advantage relative to what I would call as a commodity play. At the end of the day, Micron makes DRAMs and NAND, and they are more or less at the whim of uh, you know supply pressures that come from people like Samsung and Hynix that are much bigger factories than Micron does. And so although the company is doing well, we prefer to be uh, in places like, uh, like NVIDIA, for example, or Qualcomm or other places. All right, because of the growth in sort of the same buckets like data center or something else? So no, data center is a bright area that we love. And so we are big, huge fans of Broadcom, which is our top pick, as well as huge fans of NVIDIA. I just feel that with commodity plays such as, uh, such as Micron, you know, things can change very quickly. For example, if we were to go into a downturn uh, in the economy, or if supply pressure was to come on from like a Samsung, which wants to take advantage of better pricing, then the fundamentals for a company like Micron can change very, very quickly. And it's almost impossible to predict that. Um, and so, you know, we want to be positioned in places such as a Broadcom, which we think is a much better play, or even an NVIDIA and a whole slew of other differentiated uh, chips that are not um, at the whim of the, the pricing uh, of a commodity play. Harshwa, I'd question your thesis is on valuation. I mean, I understand what you're saying about NVIDIA's differentiation, but I mean, it's getting uh, quite a nice premium, it would seem, for that. Uh, Samsung, perhaps, too. Micron, uh, you've got a neutral on it, but uh, the, the price target's still above where it is now, and I believe you've brought down the, the multiple on which you're judging it. I mean, it seems like you're open to the idea that it might surprise you. Yeah, we are open to the idea. We're always open, right? Every day is a different scenario. And then if the economy does pick up, um, we don't go into a recession, for example, which is what we're hearing as a concern from a lot of our customers. You take a look at stocks like, for example, Qualcomm, which has got extremely good profit margins, extremely good prospects. But when we talk to our customers, we get pushback that, uh, you know, there's inventory built, for example, in handsets, and then there is also risk of possible macroeconomic slowdown with interest rates rising. You're seeing that concern uh, surface to the top. And I just feel that, for example, a Qualcomm trading at 12 times is a much better place to be at, despite all the good that is that is happening at a place like Micron. On NVIDIA, it's a completely different thing. If you listen to Jensen's GTC address, there is a shift, a fundamental shift going on where NVIDIA's transitioning from a hardware company making chips and systems to effectively displaying a model that is software centric, extremely high margins, extremely you know, huge large opportunities at extremely good growth. So NVIDIA I would place in a completely different category. Uh, and also companies such as Qualcomm and Broadcom have, have an extremely interesting software angle to their chips. You know, usually it's a system sale uh, a chip sold with a bunch of intermingling software that you have to put on. And that gives these companies pricing power and hooks. And that's why we prefer those kind of stocks. Harshit Stirtra, you know, what about 
Micron is a beneficiary of the CHIPS Act. It has been pushing for that alongside Intel. Sanjay Morota made the case again earlier this morning on CNBC. Is that baked into your target and rating? So, no, they are absolutely a player to get some of that money, and, and they should. They have a lot of fab. Um, the CHIP Act is about uh, you know, promoting investment in the U.S., one, promoting technological excellence in the chip manufacturing space. And Micron has a whole bunch of fabs. In fact, it's going to spend something like 11 or $12 billion this year. So a lot of that is baked in. Um, unfortunately, this is not a part of ongoing business. While it does trend in Micron, I cannot look at it and say that this is something that's going to happen every year and that I should, should, should give a benefit to the Micron stock price. If they get the money, it goes into the balance sheet. It gets a sort of a nudge and a help from the U.S. government. But then there are other companies such as, you know, um, I, I would suspect Intel and a whole slew of other companies are going to get a piece of that money. Anybody that effectively has fabs is going to get money in that space for sure. Finally, Harsh, uh, Street's taken note of the chair of Taiwan Semi saying that uh, demand for some consumer electronics, smartphones, PCs starting to weaken, especially in China, uh, as, this, as the rising component cost is passed on to consumers. What are you and your colleagues uh, thinking about that, about that end demand right now? Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting. China is a very interesting uh, place to be right now from a handset standpoint. So the data in China for 5G handsets is, has worsened, I believe, two quarters in a row. But if you sit back for a second and look at it on a yearly basis and consider what time frame we are talking about. So we're talking about March, February data. This is after Christmas, uh, which a lot of the, the Oppo, Vivo, and Xiaomi guys uh, you know, interact with in the European markets. And then this is after the Chinese New Year. This is typically the time when you see inventory build, when you see weakening sales and things like handsets and consumer data, because all the Chinese customers and European customers that buy Chinese handsets have sort of spent that money for all practical purposes. And so this is sort of a reloading period. We expect in the handset market that June quarter will be the bottom. And that's a function of just the way Apple plays into the market this year. And then we expect a very strong September quarter. Let's not forget that handset units, for example, will be up low single digits this year and, and hopefully up low single digits again next year, whereas 5G phones will be up in the neighborhood of 50% this year and 20% plus this year. So there is a big inflection going on still, which benefits a lot of our companies that play into the 5G space. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that does put that into, into some better perspective. So I appreciate it very much. Year. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Th Thank you. Speaking of handsets and 5G, Apple is aiming for its 12th straight day of gains today, a tie for its longest ever win streak going all the way back to 2003. But can the gains continue? Dom Tu joins us this morning to break things down for us. Dom, currently down about seven tenths of a percent, but the last hour of trading over the last few weeks has been wild. It's it, not out of the question. No, it's, it's not. And if you look just in the last half hour to hour of trading today, the Apple bulls did try to make a run towards pushing it into positive territory. Like you said, we're off about three quarters of 1% right now. But this kind of speaks to this notion that Apple, just in the last 12 days or so, has been this place where a lot of traders have used the opportunity to buy on discounts. And just to show you what I'm talking about, if you take a look at the Invesco QQQ Trust, which 
tracks the Nasdaq 100, the biggest names out there. Maybe no surprise, Apple with a 12% weighting in that ETF will help drive a lot of the action. But you can see it trade relatively closely over the last year in the first few months here. But then by the time the fall came around, you really started to see a divergence between Apple and the Nasdaq overall. Apple continued to outperform and even does so today, given the fact that we have those tensions between Ukraine and Russia, the war going on out there. So Apple becomes a key part of this whole, is there a sale price with which traders want to buy. Let me show you now about this year-to-day chart with Apple, about how things have kind of played out so far. If you take a look, we were nearly at just about a touching a $3 trillion valuation in the early part of this year, just in the first couple of trading days. But on a year-to-day basis, we are now just about flat. Again, not much movement there, but this streak that you've been talking about has been roughly 18% to the upside during this winning streak that may be broken today or maybe not. But that's a big move here for sure. And by the way, the the price that you want to pay attention to right now is $183.83 because thereabouts is when Apple hits that $3 trillion valuation again. Will it hit it? Well, eventually it probably will. If you talk to analysts on Wall Street about it, because they have a price target right now going upwards about 191 some dollars. So 178.68 is where it is right now. You go all the way up to about 191 or so dollars, 192, and then all of a sudden you start to see where the analyst takes are. 79% of analysts right now tracked by FactSet have a buy rating on this stock. 19% say hold and just 2% actually say sell. You can say that there's more of a consensus building right now that Apple is the place that a lot of people want to be, especially in that large tech trade. But again, This has been a story, John, Deirdre, Carl, over the course of the last several months where there has been some kind of a narrative made to fit the Apple bull thesis every every step along the way. It remains to be seen whether traders continue to believe that in an environment where interest rates continue to rise, growth becomes more of an issue, and of course, whether or not a safe haven trade comes back if the markets do end up going to the downside even more so, especially for NASDAQ stocks. John, back over to you. Great overview on Apple. Dom, thanks. Well, unlike Apple, Block and PayPal down by about a third or more over the last 12 months. Goldman says buy now. We've got a breakdown of that call and a check on cloud valuations. Next, Tech Check's just getting started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Time for a gut check on two fintechs as Goldman Sachs gets bullish on PayPal and Block. PayPal has had a tough year, the stock down more than 30% year-to-date, but Goldman expects EPS growth ahead, saying value-added features for merchants are likely to increase PayPal and Venmo's market share. It's initiated at a buy 
144, the price target there. The firm also calling Block a buy, shares down almost 10% year-to-date, but uh, Goldman believes Block, the home of Square and Cash App, is going to benefit from the recent acquisition of Afterpay, while increasing monetization through Cash App's new product features for underbanked users. D, um, you know, the case to be made that some of these names have been beaten down quite a bit, but I think there's also mm-hmm. a question of how much growth potential there is in them as some smaller, nimble yeah. players try to eat into their core <laughs> offerings. That is the key question. Competition has increased so much in this space. But when it comes to PayPal, last quarter, Wall Street kind of freaked out that they were going to look at ARPU over user growth. But when we talk about competition, I mean, Venmo in particular and PayPal have so many millions more users. The key, Carl, is cross-selling, which has always been key for the number of fintech companies. Can they do that? And you could make the argument that PayPal is in a pretty good position because it does have the most users that are already on the platform. Yeah. Uh, and as we said yesterday, uh, Dee, I know you were out, but John and I had a discussion with an analyst about Etsy and a similar call on pins, John. And the cost of acquiring consumers, given what's happening in digital marketing, is not getting any easier. Mm-hmm. It is not. It is not, Dee. Well, we're going to get to our next segment, Bessemer Ventures Emerging Cloud Index, now off its November peak by more than 30 percent. And our next guest says the average company growth rate is 45 percent, suggesting that it will take roughly 20 months to get back if growth rates hold and multiples stay the same as they are today. Here for more on the sector, uh, Bessemer Venture Partners, Byron Dieter. Byron, good morning. It's great to have you on. Great to be back. Thank you, Deidre. <laughs> so in what I just read, key there is if multiples stay the same as they are today. I wonder, uh, Byron, if you see Adobe, for example, as a cautionary tale and that it reported late in the season and it did raise concerns, some concerns about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and European softness. Could we see that show up among more of these emerging cloud names in the earnings season that is about to kick off? Well, as we've seen, the multiples in the sector have been hammered over the last 100 or so days. They've come from about a 25x run rate revenue multiple down to about a 10x multiple, um, 8 to 9x run rate, 12 to 13x forward. Um, And that's just been a massive pullback, about 53% on average across the whole basket in the emerging cloud index. Uh, When we peel that apart, very little of that has been due to business performance. These companies continue to perform. They continue to deliver. This is very much a macro question uh, related to inflation, interest rates, and a little bit of the geopolitical um, to the extent that that may have some demand impact. I think of those factors, though, the actual business impact is lowest on the list. Certainly some companies like Adobe with international businesses will feel some exposure, uh, possibly also some currency exposure. However, it's much more the leading indicators around uh, the macroeconomics uh, elements and the inflation impact as that has to growth companies. People are looking at these hyper growth businesses with future free cash flows and they're doing the trade and they're saying, I'm less patient. I'm less willing to wait for those cash flows. I want it now. And as a result, they're valuing current income and current cash flow. They're massively discounting these future values, even for businesses that are growing 30, 40, 50, 60 percent over extended periods of time. Right. And that's not really when you think about it that long to get back to some of those peaks that we saw uh, during the pandemic. And I know that, Byron, we've talked in the past about sort of this Amazon moment. Now could be a really good time to pick up some names that will even surpass those peaks. But what we talk about less and perhaps less fun is the Cisco moment, a stock that 
fell enormously during the dot-com bust and has continued to remain a very important company, but has never actually come back to that peak. And that's the investor's actionable moment right now, which is um, think back on that dot-com situation of the companies where demand fundamentally eroded for a large number of those companies. Um, and the Cisco's of the world, they just lost a customer base overnight versus the Amazons in 2002. That was one of those defining opportunities to buy a long-term multi-decade platform company that was gonna become a franchise of one of the two massive investable trends of the last 20 years, internet and mobile within tech. Cloud computing is that third. And we had that discussion. John asked the very specific question, and I want to be very direct with the answer. This right now is that Amazon moment for 2022. Cloud computing is that third massive wave of technology. It's a, it's a huge multi-trillion dollar investable trend. Uh, and the multiples don't need to come back for the stocks to rise massively. And that's the core point. These embedded growth rates, the organic engines within these businesses are fantastic. And you can roll this forward and run flat multiples for the next several years. And you can still build back to those 52 week highs uh, that we saw last year and well beyond because of the compounding of these business models. The Byron, cloud, mo oh, yes, please. Byron, I, I've been trying to, uh, great to see you again, by the way. Uh, I've been trying to figure out the, the thesis that makes sense for right now when it comes to particularly enterprise software. And I think cloud as a term, yes, it's, it's, we use it, but it, it's become largely meaningless. And th there are two buckets that I'm really fascinated with. We've got Dave McJanic from HashiCorp on later. I know it's an investment of yours. And there are companies that are managing multiple cloud environments and trying to maintain velocity and safety for customers. That's an interesting area, a lot of DevOps for me. And then also purpose-built modern resources for industries, right, like Procore. Um, I, I, those are more interesting to me than cloud overall. And I want your take on whether that's uh, a couple of the lenses that investors should be looking at these companies through. Well, you make a great point to start, which is uh, legacy software companies are trying to cloud wash their businesses and use the terms and suggest they're riding this wave, um, even if they're just adjacent to the macro trend. Uh, it's much more important to look at these core businesses. You mentioned too, the infrastructure sector and vertical software. Both of those we think are massive beneficiaries of this shift and will be more nimble in the transition. Uh, as you noted, uh, Dave and HashiCorp, uh, one of the fantastic infrastructure businesses, massive TAM, they're enabling this transition. We see them as having huge long-term potential and I'm excited for what he says on your show here uh, right afterwards. If you look at vertical software, certainly the Procores, the Toasts, et cetera, what you see is pretty good defensibility because it took them so long to create these moats by vertical. They also have a lot more defensibility. And so as the boardroom talk moves to profitability, as they talk about it's no longer growth at all at any cost, but it's this efficient growth trade-off, you're going to see those businesses rotate over to generate more free cash flow. You're going to see growth rates give a little bit at the high end, but long-term sustainability of these platforms is going to show their resiliency. And I think it's going to surprise people in terms of the massive TAM they unlock through subsequent ways of innovation as they go into payments, as they go into more marketplace dynamics, as they launch multiple adjacent mm -hmm. products and adjacent clouds. Well, Byron, you're certainly not the only one who says that we're still in the early innings of this. Uh, always great to get your insights. We'll talk to you soon. Byron Dieter. Always a pleasure. Thanks, team. We often talk about how and when companies should go public, be it IPO, SPAC, or direct listing. But a new law that targets billionaires could shift the balance toward more companies going or staying private, which would obviously have far-reaching consequences for the entire startup economy. Robert Frank is talking about that all day today. Hey, Robert. 
Carl, well, the billionaire tax by Biden is a 20% minimum tax on unrealized gains for all households worth $100 million or more. But there are two categories of taxpayers. You've got the liquid wealthy and the illiquid wealthy or public versus private owners. Now, founders and big shareholders of public companies who have to pay every year on their stock gains. Owners of private companies can defer that tax until, if and when, the business is ever sold. So, you guys, we're just talking about Block. Let's use Stripe and Block as examples here. Jack Dorsey's stake in Block increased by more than $10 billion in 2020 as that stock more than quadrupled. So for that tax year, he would owe a tax of about $2 billion. Stripe, of course, is private. Its valuation more than tripled in 2020. CEO Patrick Collison's stake increased by more than $6 billion, but he does not have to pay that $1.4 billion he would if it were public. He can actually defer them until Stripe goes public, and right now he's saying they're happy to stay private, at least for now. The White House saying this is all aimed at helping family companies and private companies manage their taxes without being forced to sell. And there is an interest charge for business owners who do eventually pay for deferring those taxes. Tax advisors say over time, this amounts to a substantial tax subsidy for private company owners and could lead to more companies going private or at least more private companies remaining private and not going public. Guys? Uh, fascinated. We're going to see. Uh, we probably don't even understand yet the consequences if, in fact, this all rose forward. Uh, Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. If you're looking to protect your portfolio from inflation, buy TI, analog devices, Skyworks, three tech stocks with rising dividends. You can read the full list of top picks at CNBC.com pro. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. It's one thing falling in love with a house picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. NASDAQ is turning lower this morning. Uh, we're going to watch that along with the Dow down 62. Activision trying to clean up its act as a federal judge signs off on a multi-million dollar settlement from the company. We'll talk about what it could mean for their deal with Microsoft this hour. First, though, let's get a news update with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Florida will receive $860 million as part of the settlement of an opioid epidemic case. Nearly $500 million will come from CVS. The rest will be paid by Teva Pharmaceuticals and Allergan. 
President Biden may sign an order encouraging the domestic production of minerals for EV batteries as soon as this week. This according to multiple reports. The order would help mining companies access government funding. And BioNTech shares jumping 5% on strong results driven by COVID vaccine sales. The German biotech company also announcing a special dividend and a $1.5 billion stock buyback plan. Crude oil continues to soar off yesterday's low. West Texas Intermediate now up 4% on the day on prospects of new Western sanctions against Russia. Also, OPEC sources saying the alliance is likely to stick with planned increases to oil production. Back over to you, Carl. All right, Bertha, thank you. We're watching shares at Disney today down double digits over the last year. Uh, could new high-tech features at the parks be a key to the rebound? Julia Borston is watching the reaction to that park presentation earlier in the week. Julia? That's right. Disney drawing some positive commentary from a number of analysts on a presentation to investors about its theme parks. Bank of America reiterating its buy rating on the stock, raising its estimates for the parks division for fiscal 2023 and 24, saying the return of international visitors, cruise ship launches and new attractions should be tailwinds, noting that the recovery so far is being driven by domestic attendance, yield management and opportunistic changes the park made during the pandemic to increase the park's longer-term operating margin potential. Wells Fargo, which rates Disney a signature pick, writes that domestic park execution could drive about 5% upside to earnings per share, and Benchmark writing that it maintains a positive view of the park's business, and it sees the integration of new technology and the, quote, immersive vision of the future beyond the traditional business driving growth there. Now, another factor these analysts are watching the international launch of Disney+. Plus. Yesterday, the company set launch dates and pricing for 42 countries in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And of course, that international spread of Disney+, Plus will pose more competition for Netflix. Benchmark in a new note today, saying that though Netflix rallied yesterday on strong viewing results for Bridgerton season two in light of competition, they don't see much upside to weaker subscriber guidance for the quarter, which will be announced in two weeks. One more note on Netflix, a new study from a company called Time to Play found that over half of subscribers share their password with someone outside of their household. The question is whether the crackdown on password sharing ends up driving more people to sign up or just frustrates some of those subscribers. Guys? Julie, I wanted to ask you about uh, Meta and this Washington Post scoop this morning uh, that says that Meta is actually paying one of the biggest Republican consulting firms to quietly orchestrate a nationwide campaign to turn the public against TikTok. Uh, what could they be doing and what was sort of lay that out for us? Well, look, we've gotten a, a lot of comments here, a lot of comments both from TikTok and from Meta and from the consulting firm, which says it's a PR agency that is not Republican. Um, they want to make it clear. They, they tweeted out that they, are, that they are mischaracterized as a Republican agency. This, this is a PR firm, and they've been hired by Meta to f criticize rival TikTok. Um, Meta sent us a comment saying that this did, it did um, mischaracterize things, but they did say, we believe all platforms, including TikTok, should face a level of scrutiny, scru scrutiny consistent with their growing success. So Meta's acknowledging that they did hire this firm, trying to, to draw attention to some of the things that TikTok was doing that parents might 
take issue with. But what I think is really interesting here is, you know, there's some back and forth, whether these trends that, that Meta was pointing to, did they start on TikTok? Did they start on Facebook? You know, where where did these horrible things that are that are spreading through these platforms start? I think that's sort of irrelevant to the question here. And I think what this really all comes down to is the idea that Meta is hiring firms to try to better compete with its rivals. And as they face growing scrutiny, point out the fact that others should possibly be drawing more scrutiny as well. Yeah, Julia, they're like that kid in the class who the teacher keeps pointing at for talking and passing notes. And they're like, well, but did you see what Sheila was doing? She was doing, she was doing the same thing and Sheila's getting popular. Uh, Julia, thank you. After the break, a check on the cloud, cybersecurity, and more with the CEO of $10 billion software company HashiCorp. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's been a choppy market since the start of the year. Rising interest rates and Russia's invasion of Ukraine affecting every sector. But what about enterprise spending? DevOps company HashiCorp is one firm continuing to turn in strong results. It's down with the market since its December IPO, but the stock has also risen more than 60 percent in the last couple of weeks. Joining us now, HashiCorp CEO Dave McJanet. Uh, Dave, great to have you back. Um, and I really want to check in on, I mean, you guys are in a space that we were just talking to Byron Dieter about, where you're making sense of all kinds of cloud resources, public and private, for customers. How is demand holding up? Your, your net dollar retention rate seems to be high. How much more are customers demanding from you these days? Uh, thanks, John. Great to be with you. I think, as you said, we, we we had a strong quarter in the first in the fourth quarter of last year. But we're really just part of this sort of long-term secular trend towards cloud, and, and the enabling role we play is a pretty profound one. So, I think we're we're we're, we're super optimistic about sort of the role we play. I think our, our core thesis years ago was that cloud is just an inevitability for every company, and multi-cloud in particular, which is the inevitability. And so, you know, I think we feel pretty good about it. I, you know, again, these are these are long-term secular trends. You can see the scale of the cloud vendors and as they continue to grow, you can see, you know, that market's growing uh, fairly robustly and, and we're, we're pleased to be part of it. So, you know, you know the, the, the customer side of it tends to be, um, you know, people making the conceptual decision that they're going to move to cloud. And these are long burn uh, sort of transformational projects that evolve over multiple years. So, you know, I think we were pleased with where things were in the fourth quarter. And I think we're optimistic about where the market goes from here. So talk to me about R&D and sales, if you can, in two separate buckets. Sure. The, the drop of the stock price has got to affect, uh, in, in some degrees negatively, in some degrees positively, your ability to retain uh, employees with higher morale and your ability to recruit uh, employees. And then on the sales side, what has happened with your sales velocity as um, there's been so much volatility in the overall market are, is it harder to engage with customers to get that uh, additional spend? Yeah, sir, certainly on the on the R&D side, yeah, it's super interesting. As a participant in Silicon Valley, this is uh, as competitive a labor mar market as I've know. ever seen. I've I don't been know if I'm getting time. your, uh, your audio. Uh, let's see if am we I, can... Am I off of audio? No, still not getting it. Let's see if we can get uh, uh, Dave McJanet's audio back because need to be able to, to hear that for sure the answer to that question. Carl, um, you know, we talk a lot about what's happening with these companies in the stock market, especially as the, the Fed is raising rates and it takes growth stocks down in, in particular. But if you watch what HashiCorp reported uh, just a couple of weeks ago in earnings, uh, dollar-wise, 
their growth is strong, and they're able to add to the amount that customers are spending. So really curious about those mechanics and how that's working out for them. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, the audio is troubled at this point, guys. Do we have them back? Okay. Can you uh, can you respond to the question that John originally posed yeah, to you, absolutely. Dave? Yeah, absolutely. He was asking just about the sort of the R and D hiring side and then the sales engagement side. So on the R and D hiring side, yeah, I mean, I think we're in a fortunate position. I think we had well over a hundred thousand job applicants last year, so we certainly are a recipient of a lot of the, the mobility that's happening in the in the uh, in the hiring market. And I think we we. We operate at sort of the cutting edge of building distributed systems, and that's just fundamentally appealing to the engineering organization type folks that we that we attract. So um, while the market's certainly competitive, I think we, we've been really a, a recipient of, of, of sort of some of the mobility that you see in the market. Um, on the on the go-to-market side, yeah, it's actually a super interesting environment. I think on, on the one side, you've got sort of this coming out of COVID and people going back to work, um, and then you've got which is a natural sort of accelerant to our ability to engage. And then the other side, you've got sort of growing uncertainty around rates and everything else. I think, I think you know, we haven't really seen that much of a change. To be truthful, I think uh, the the reality is that these you know these these transformational projects people are involved in around building new things on cloud uh, are not short term decisions people are making. I think, and as a result, they're sort of you know they move a little bit like the Mississippi uh, is the phrase we like to use. And uh, I think we haven't seen that really change. You know, there's some gives and takes, but ultimately not not really change. I think the thing that's really most notable to us is that when people are adopting cloud, it's sort of a it's sort of a one way door, so to speak, in terms of their 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 decision criteria. So these tend to be deeply considered decisions that once made are, are not easily undone. I think that is probably the biggest uh, sort of element of, of our go to market model that is just a reality. You know, good news, bad news is you know people take considered decisions. You know, good news. So that's something takes longer for making for making that decision. But but, but you know, good news is they they're, they're pretty profoundly durable. Uh, and my apologies, Dave. That was my own personal audio problem. Everybody <laughs> yeah, no else, problem. everybody else uh, was fine. Uh, I want to ask you about M and A, and to what degree do you see opportunity there, and to what degree do you think consolidation is going to be an important part of this enterprise software market over the next twelve to twenty-four months? Yeah, I think I might, my guess is you'll probably see a, a bunch of M and A activity from the larger companies in the world, um, just just sort of as multiples have compressed in the in, in the public markets. Um, you know, if I were in the corporate groups, I would certainly be uh, more active. But I think, but I think in the private markets, you know, those valuations haven't really haven't really been impacted yet. So I think it's you know my gut tells me it's less likely there. But but you know have to have to wait and see. And I think. These markets we participate in are so large that that um, you know they are you know I'm sure larger companies will will, will be looking at, at moments where multiples are compressed. But you know, from from our perspective, you know I think we're you know we are playing in these really really enormous infrastructure markets. You know I think one of the things that that we shared in our last earnings call is we actually only we 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 added our first ten million dollar annual ARR customer, which is sort of indicative of the scale of the markets that we participate in. And I think. Um, you know, those of us that are sort of well-funded and, and you know, have the eye on the prize, uh, we're all going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Dave, thank you. Yep. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you again soon. I'm Dave <laughs> McJanet, the CEO of HashiCorp. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And you will hear him, John. It happens to the best of us. Uh, meanwhile, check out shares of Roblox. They are up almost 40% in the last two weeks. That said, shares are still in the red for March. A key risk for the online platform and other names in the metaverse, fraud and lots of it. That story is later this hour. Stay with us. 
Let's get a gut check on gaming. Morgan Stanley out with a new note on Unity says its next $25 billion opportunity is actually outside of gaming. They have the stock at overweight with a price target of $185. Meanwhile, shares of Nintendo taking a hit after the company delayed its widely anticipated new Legend of Zelda game to spring of 2023. And Sony announcing this week a plan to merge its existing PlayStation services into one subscription to compete with Xbox's Game Pass. And finally, do not forget Activision Blizzard, the company agreeing to an $18 million settlement over its sexual harassment lawsuit as it tries to clean up its act ahead of Microsoft's pending acquisition. And Steve Kovac is here to chat about what comes next, Steve. Hey, Dee. Yeah, that's right. So um, Activision yesterday reached this agreement with the EEOC to create this $18 million fund for sexual harassment and misconduct claimants to kind of come forward and, and, and get uh, their compensation from that fund. Uh, however, I spoke with uh, Lisa Bloom uh, the, earlier this morning. She's representing eight clients, uh, both current and former uh, Activision employees, who are making really outstanding uh, allegations about the company culture there. Um, and they're also specifically calling for Bobby Kotick to be fired. He's the CEO of Activision who, uh, according to several reports, including the Wall Street Journal, knew a lot about this conduct going on in his company. So they're calling for him to be fired um, ahead of this acquisition, which he can get a windfall of hundreds of millions of dollars from Microsoft. Uh, here's what Lisa told me. We are demanding that CEO Bobby Kotick be fired for cause, and that means that he would not get the hundreds of millions of dollars in windfall from Microsoft. And yes, the court can do that because in California, courts have broad powers to remedy sexual harassment. And this is an extreme case where over and over again, women were sexually harassed and sexually assaulted in the workplace, often in front of management or by management, and nothing happened to help them. Now, Dee, uh, what uh, is going to happen here is uh, Activision has already told me they're accepting all these claimants to come forward, but they're not directly commenting on Kodak's future and, and these co new calls for him to be fired. And Microsoft, for its part, has declined to comment. Yeah, I wonder, Steve, does this complicate the, um, the acquisition itself? I mean, Bobby Kodak owns a huge portion of Activision Blizzard. So it seems really difficult to imagine a scenario where he walks away empty handed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he has a huge portion. This is the company founded decades ago. Um, he's expected to leave the company if and when this acquisition goes through in the middle of next year. Uh, but as far as the risk, I mean, Microsoft knew what they were getting into, right, coming into it. And, you know, they saw the share price uh, dip just like Berkshire Hathaway did when they invested last year. So, I mean, they kind of smelled the blood in the water, so to speak, uh, because of these culture issues. Uh, fascinating. Uh, it is, uh, it's been a process uh, watching this one get put together here. We're going to see how this develops with your help, Steve. Thank you, uh, Steve Kovac. Uh, Dow down about 46 here. We're watching Bitcoin today as well. Back below 47K, red again for the year to date. Tech Checks back in a moment. Some news from the crypto space, and that is another big hack. The makers behind one of the most popular blockchain-based games, Axie Infinity, announcing that hackers were able to steal more than $600 million worth of crypto assets from the platform. And this is one of the biggest hacks ever seen in the DeFi space. Axie Infinity creator Sky Mavis said it's committed to ensuring that all drained funds are recovered or reimbursed to players. But for now, users are unable to withdraw or deposit funds as the group works with law enforcement to try and find the culprit. Carl? Uh, meantime, crypto, D, is not the only place in Web3 at risk of fraud. What about the metaverse? Christina Partsinevelos has more on that story. Hi, Christina. 
Hi. Well, behind all the hype and big predictions for metaverses lurk security risks and fraudsters who visibly pretend to be someone else. Take, for example, this viral video of what we would think is Tom Cruise, but is really digitally altered to appear to be someone else. Expect more fakes to come, which means people pretending to be you in all kinds of transactions online. The metaverse, predicted to be worth over $650 billion by 2030, aims to create fully functioning virtual environments as close to reality as possible. And companies right now are rushing to provide the artificial intelligence needed for these virtual worlds. Meta, Microsoft, Palantir, NVIDIA, all pure play AI stocks, which could stand to benefit in the near term. But nefarious types historically gravitate to new technologies in search of opportunities. If you think about fraud in cryptocurrency, for example, it's the same kind of thing. There's no protections in this decentralized world. And the metaverse is built on decentralized protocols, meaning there's no consumer protection right now. While AI firms like Veritone, up uh, just about 13% in the past month alone, work to provide ethical fakes like voice clones of celebrities without the need for studio time, their consumer protection is actually embedded in their products. When we create a synthetic voice model, we actually, in the WAV file itself, embed inaudible tones, let's say, or elements in the WAV file that we know came from us. Veritone knows, but we won't always know. The metaverse will bring a horde of cybersecurity issues. JPM analysts suggest Okta, Zscaler, and Sentinel-1 that have strong upside potential, especially as these hacks continue, especially within the NFT world. And although the metaverse is a genuinely, we know this, remarkable concept and would help the world in several ways, it is crucial to realize that if might all fail, if or all of the metaverse might fail if the cybersecurity aspect is ignored. D. K-Parts, thank you very much. NASDAQ, meanwhile, down about six-tenths of a percent. We're going to go to a quick break. Be back in two. On a programming note, today is CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit. And, guys, I'm going to be jumping on a panel shortly after the show, uh, an all-star an all-star panel, I should add. We're going to talk big data, AI, and what is next in health tech. So you can still tune in if, you, if our audience out there wants to register. It'll be a great discussion. Uh, could not be more timely given all the public health pressures uh, that we're seeing in the market and the economy and the world. Meantime, what a weird uh, market day, just almost frozen in place, south or just north of 4,600. VIX is still a teenager. We're going to watch that this afternoon. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.